I was going to start a series, um, and uh, if I was on the uh, hill this morning, but I just decided I'm going to start it anyway. So those of you that won't be with us every week, um, you can you can catch it online. But the title of this series is for King or Country. You see, the way that our our uh, our nation is heading is kind of like a story that we were told around the dinner table this week about the guy that was the oil worker, and as he left the as he left the, the Gulf and he would fly in a helicopter about 100 miles off the, off the coast there, he would stop at his place um, at his rig and he would stay there where he would work for 14 days and then he would have to fly back in. And um, the idea is that, you know, if the weather was bad, they wouldn't take them back in. But all of a sudden he told us that he got a, 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 one guy that said, I can chance it, let's go. There's a break in the weather, let's do this. And he said for a hundred miles, he was just holding on, praying for dear life. And the guy was ducking and dodging. He said, we, he said the, the, the helicopter had to have been hit by lightning at least five times. I was like, wow. And, uh, but he told us of a, they made it safely, but he told us of another helicopter that began to take a rapid descent straight in for the ocean and no one made it. And you say, why are you telling me that? Because America is not in a gradual decline. America is in a nosedive. Spiritually, morally, in every way, shape, or form. But here's the thing, is that for many of you and for many of us, we have been told by everyone around us that if we can just elect someone and get them in office, they'll change everything. And it's not my calling as a pastor to stand before you and tell you who to rally behind. It's my calling as a pastor to let you understand what is going on around you and take the truth of God's Word and say, you better not miss it. Because we are told that if we can just elect somebody in the, you know, the highest person, they'll fix all of this. And I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. You think that your candidate can fix this, and I'm telling you, a president's not going to fix it. And, and the, the thing is, is that every single nation that has ever existed will always find some basis of truth for how they discern truth. See, if you're a note taker, you, you, you like to write, I'm going to give you some notes. The first idea that when, when a nation begins to build itself around some ideal truth, it, it's, it's almost like a, a common understanding of truth. And what you say is true, I say is true. We call this natural law. And you say, what does that have to do? It has everything to do with this. You see, natural law says that God is good. God is the creator. God is the one who holds everything together. God is sovereign. God is our only hope. And we see that. Why do you think our founding fathers wrote it in? We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. That's the first type of basis of truth. The second is that the highest person in charge tells you what's true and what's not true. This would be Marxism. This would be communism. This would also be Islam. Of how one mullah can tell an entire caliphate, women, this is what you are to do. And women, this is how you are to drive. Or you can't drive. Or this is what you can't wear. And then you have a third level. Which is an autonomous society. And it's exactly what we find in the book of Judges. And it's exactly 
why I'm preaching this because it's exactly where America is right now. In Judges 21, 25, it says this. You don't have to turn there because we're going to be in the first chapter. Judges 21, 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was pleasing in their own sight. In other words, an autonomous society says, I have freedom. An autonomous society says, I'll do whatever I want to do, and I'll decide my own truth, and this is where America's at. But what happens when your freedom collides with somebody else's freedom? Guess what we do? And we're seeing it in our country. We fall back to level two where the highest person in charge says, this is what's true and this is what's not true. And, and here's the thing, guys. Our founding fathers rejected the idea. It wasn't a revolt. The American Revolution was not a revolt against King George. The American Revolution was a re revolt against any one person claiming that they could be king over a people. But yet every people needed King Jesus. That's what the American Revolution was all about. And the idea is that somehow we, we forget this because we are in this society right now. Think about everything that is happening politically over the last year. Decide for yourself what is true, which bathroom you can go in. Decide for yourself what your truth is on marriage. Decide for yourself whether a child has rights in the womb or he doesn't. Decide for yourself your truth. And when all of a sudden my freedom collides with someone else's freedom, it will all of a sudden the highest person in the land says, no, 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 no. This is what's true and this is the way we're going. And I'm telling you, there is no hope for just a president. There's only hope when we look at 2 Chronicles 7, 14, where it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sin. And then, will only then, will I heal their land. We forget about that. And the book of Judges mirrors America. You say, well, how? The book of Judges had experienced, at the very beginning of this book, they had experienced great victory. They had experienced great success. They had experienced great military power. And you know, if you look throughout this book, it's only until their military is stripped down and they can't defeat anyone before they turn back to God. And I wonder if that's where God's taken America. Because we think for a moment that we can make America great again. Or that somehow we're better together and it's all about us. And I'm telling you, that is the farthest thing from the truth. It's all about Him. And unless we bring Him back into the picture, we'll never be great again. So look with me in the book of Judges. Now that I've had my fit, Stay seated. We're going to read through most of this. But I want to share some things with you this morning. I want you to notice that I have three chairs on stage. Three chairs. And these three chairs really represent... I'm going to pull these aside so you guys can see them. These three chairs really represent the nation of Israel. See, this first chair is all about radical faith. 
and trusting God no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstances. Look at the first verse. It says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, Who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? In other words, think about this. Judges is the saddest book in all of Scripture. It, it, over and over and over, God's people turn from God. They find themselves in, in terrible situations until God has to send a judge to deliver them. Over and over and over. It's the, it's the saddest book in all the Bible. But do you realize it started in a prayer meeting? Think about that for just a moment. When we look at these chairs, I want to take you through Scripture for just a moment. This would be Abraham. He trusted God. He believed God. He had radical faith. God said, leave the, the, the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the land that I will show you. This radical faith. But his son Isaac, see, Abraham set up an altar and then he dug wells. Think about that for just a moment. Abraham was more concerned about God and worshiping God than he was about taking care of himself. When we move into Isaac, it's a gradual descent and Isaac digs wells first before he sets up altars. Jacob never built an altar until a crisis happened in his life. Let me walk you through another. David, a man after God's own heart. Radical faith. God told him to do some incredible things. And he followed through. He was obedient. And God blessed his life. But Solomon, his son, didn't have half the heart that his daddy had. And he began to turn to his foreign wives. And his foreign wives, their gods, drug him away until all of a sudden... Solomon had a son named Jeroboam, and the Bible says he did not know the Lord. And we just see this radical, radical descent. And I'm telling you, I believe America sits right here for the majority of Americans. And we just miss it. But this first chair represents radical faith. And I want you to ask God this morning. Ask God, which chair am I in today? Where am I sitting at in my life? Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me which place I'm at? Am I in radical faith? Am I in half-hearted belief? Or am I just denying God? See, the, look at the first verse. They started out in a prayer meeting. And God says, Lord answered, verse 2, Judah is to go. I've handed the land over to him. Now, look at this in verse 4. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. That's where you'd think you'd find that guy, right? They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, fought against him, and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. Radical faith. This generation said, okay, God, who is to go? Judah's to go. Okay, Judah's going to go, and God delivers them. God hands them over. And, and look what it says. I, I, I want to help you see something in this text. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, seized him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. I love judges. There's some weird stuff in this book. But we're going to get there. It's just going to... Makes sense in just a minute. Adonai Bezek said, oh, it's such injustice. I can't believe this has happened to me. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. Look at what he says. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. 
God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, why does the text mention Adonai Bezek? Adonai stands for Lord. Does anybody know what Bezek stands for? Lightning. And I think this is a picture. Not I think. I know. This is a picture of Satan in the Old Testament. The Lord of lightning. What did Jesus say? I saw heaven, or I saw Satan descend from heaven like lightning. Look, look at what he does. Why does he cut off their thumbs and their big toes? Because they could never take up a sword and fight him again and fight against him and take back what they had lost. They could never run from him, so they cut off their big toes, so they could never get away. And so they are helpless and hopeless, and all they have is just the scraps that come off his table. Can I tell you something? If you're in this first chair, Satan not only wants to cut off your thumbs and your big toes, he wants to destroy you, he wants to get you so far away from God, not only that he destroys your testimony, but that you become a reproach against God. And Adonai Bezek is a picture of what Satan does to believers. Because we think that somehow our thumbs are cut off, and I'm going to talk about this in a small group, and we can't fight against him. And the Bible tells us completely different. We can pick up the sword of the Spirit and use it right against him. And he cuts off our big toes, and we think we can never get away from him. We don't have the power to get rid of this temptation, to get away from him. Yes, we do. The Bible says, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. See, that, there's this picture in here in this first chair. They believed God's promises. They heard the word of God, and they obeyed. But look over here. Look with me at verse 19. <clears throat> the Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. It's not that they couldn't. God, we're going to read in chapter 2 of why they didn't. But I want you to understand, in a moment, they surrendered this first chair and moved to half-hearted belief. It was all of a sudden, we trust you, God. We're going up. We're going to fight them. God said what? Drive the Canaanites out of the land. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the, Hitt the Hittites, the Jebusites, all of these people. Drive them out. Why? Not because God didn't love them, but because he realized they would turn Israel to other gods. And how many times do we just allow our idols to swoop in and it, we forfeit the radical faith chair to half-hearted obedience? You see, it's funny because if you read this, and this is what I love about Scripture, if you read the whole first chapter, now, now go on with me, look at verse 21. At that same time, the, Benjam, the Benjam, Benjaminites, say that five times, the Benjaminites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. So they disobeyed. Look at here, 27. At that time, Manasseh failed to take possession of Bethshan and its villages. 
Look at uh, uh, verse 28. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. In other words, let me tell you what it says. There are idols in our lives that we completely destroy, and that when God says get rid of them, we get rid of them. And then there are those we tolerate in our life, and we're half-heartedly obedient. And then there are those that we go, well, wait a minute. This can benefit me even if I just keep it around in my life, even though God has said to get rid of it. Do you realize that every time you leave this place after hearing a message from a man of God, you can leave this place and not be obedient? You can come in, you can hear, you can go, man, that was some good thoughts. That, that, that's really cool. Scripture just kind of made sense to me, all this thing. And leave and never change. We can give God excuse after excuse after excuse. But as my friend Ed Litton says, an excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I never thought about it that way. The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Well, now, this is, this is really what happened. I mean, look at verse 19. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. Now, go with me to chapter 2. So they surrendered the first chair at the moment that they said, God, we don't believe you anymore. It's too hard. It's too difficult. We, they've got iron chariots. Your God parted the Red Sea. Your God parted the Jordan. Your God brought down the walls of Jericho. Your God gave you the land if you wanted it. But we couldn't. And this is how many times you and I, we leave church and this is what we do. God, I know you want me to get rid of that, but... I, I can't. The skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Because every time we say we can't, let me tell you what we're doing. Is we're saying, I love something else more than you. Henry Blackaby says that when someone has an obedience problem, it's not an education problem or that they can't carry it out. It's that they have a love problem. And we begin to love other things more than we love God. Look in chapter 2. Remember they said they couldn't. Chapter 1 is all about the facts, right? This is what's happened. Now look at chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now notice this. Circle those two, those two things. Gilgal to Bochum. Okay? Look back with me. Hold your place there and go to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9. I want you to see something. Why did the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord himself, it's not just an angel, it's the Lord himself. Why does he say, I went up from Gilgal to Bochum? Look at what happened in Gilgal in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9. The Lord then said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, that place has been called Gilgal to this day. It was an idea of it was a place of blessing, and Bochum represents tears. You have God's blessing, and all of a sudden you're going to find yourself in a mess. And how many times do we trust God and we live for God and God all of a sudden comes through on his word because he is God, but then something comes along and it's so great and, and, and God calls us to do something. We go, well, I don't know if you did this, but I can't do this. And all of a sudden we find our place in our self-hurting and tears. Look what God says. This is the only opinion that matters in the book of Judges. I brought you out of Egypt. And led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. 
I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. Underline that. I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in this land, and you are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. Now listen to how he describes them. This is the description of every idol in your life that's not Jesus Christ. Listen. Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a trap to you or a snare for you. And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. Remember I said Bochum was the place of tears. So they named that place Bochum and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. It's as if there's this major tension in Judges that we're going to get into over the next several weeks. On one hand, God says, I am a covenant-keeping God, and I will not break my covenant. We, I told you to underline that, right? But look what he says in the next few verses. What is this you have done? Therefore, verse 3, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. In other words, it's as if God is, there's this tension as if God is saying, yes, I'm a covenant-keeping God and I love you, but I'm not driving these people out because you've disobeyed me. Now, on one hand, it seems like sometimes when we read in the book of Judges that God excuses their sin, but on the other hand, it seems like God is, is punishing them because of their disobedience. So how can God excuse their sin and punish them for their disobedience? He says it right here, I will never break my covenant with you. You know what a covenant was back in those days? Is two parties entered into an agreement, and what they would do is they would take bulls or ox or sheep or whatever it is, and they would slice these animals down the middle, and they would turn them over. And, and as they would slice these animals down the middle and quarter these animals, can you imagine the bloodbath that was ensuing at this time? And the two parties would walk through this, and the blood would gather up on their garments and on their clothes and everything. And it was a picture that if I break this covenant with you, may my life look like those animals. Now, you're about to shout. God says, I will never break my covenant with you. Well, the covenant he made with Abraham, which is the covenant that, that he's talking about here, Abraham didn't walk through that. As a matter of fact, God caused a deep sleep to come over Abraham, and God himself alone walked through it. Why? Because someday, God knew that he was going to have to impute his righteousness to our account. Because we were hopeless, we were helpless, we had broken his covenant, we had sinned against him, we had forsaken the chair, and we had given up the first chair, and we had moved down the line. But God said, it's not about your work, it's going to be about my completed work on the cross. And he is a covenant-keeping God. And if you only have judges, you don't understand it. But when we have the New Testament, we realize how can God keep His covenant and punish sin? Because He is holy, and He would send His Son to do it on the cross. And His righteousness, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who had never sinned, it was credited to our account. His righteousness was imputed to our account. So therefore, when God looks at us, if we've accepted the completed work of Christ... 
He doesn't see sinful people. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. But God tells him, you're in the second chair. It's not that you couldn't. It's not that you didn't have the stamina. It's not that you didn't have the the resources. It's not that you didn't have the tools. It's that you wouldn't. Think about this for just a moment. What is it that you've told God you can't do? I can't forgive that person, God. There's no way I can forgive them. Do you know what they've done to me? It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. Well, I know, God, that you've called me to be generous and... And I know as a Christian I'm supposed to be generous. And, and, but, but that must be for people who already have money. Because that can't be for me. It's not that you can. It's that you won't. It's, I, I know that I'm supposed to avoid temptation and overcome it. But that temptation is just too great. It's not that you can't. It's that you won't. And we see radical faith in Joshua's generation. And all of a sudden... Half-hearted belief. Look with me in Scripture. We're going to see something else. You need to understand this. Every time Adonai Bezek establishes a foothold, Satan himself establishes a foothold in your life, he never wants to keep it there. He wants to take it to a stronghold where you feel like you are hopeless and helpless. And he wants to destroy you and punish you and all of these things. And it's not that you can't overcome him. It's that you love your sin more. Look in verse 10. See, the first group believed God's promises. The second group half-heartedly believed. And the third group believed their own promises. They came up with their own thing. This is where we enter into an autonomous society in the book of Judges. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors, and after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works He had done for Israel. Listen to me, and I'm going to be done. That text is not saying that they knew nothing about God. That text is not saying that they were ignorant toward the things of the Lord. They heard from their parents. They heard from the people before them about how you need to be in church. How many of you parents have told your kids that? Don't raise your hand. You need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this. But let me tell you something, parents. They just didn't care. We are raising more agnostic kids today than I've seen in a long time. And do you know what an agnostic is? It's not someone who comes along and, like an atheist and says, there is no God. An agnostic comes along and says, I'm not saying there is or there isn't. I just don't think it matters. See, they had watched a generation who was half-hearted. And when they realized that, that their parents would say, you need to go to church and you need to do these things, they said, why? It never made a difference in your life. Which chair are you in? Let me tell you something. We can slide from chair to chair and not even realize it. Where one thing, we're radically following God, stepping out in faith, then we say, no, I don't think I can do that, until it's kind of like, well, I'm I'm not repenting of that. You might as well forget it. I'm just going to deny you, God, and what you're saying about that area of my life. 
And you need, to, you need to listen to me. This third generation is why America is in what it's in. They were begging for a ruler. They were begging for someone to come along and say, that's truth and that's not truth. This generation, and I'm not saying it's a younger generation. It can be any ages. This generation comes along and says, somebody tell me what is truth because I'm begging for it. And that's why we're in the autonomous society that we're in. Because we've surrendered the natural law and saying truth is this. Exercise it. Live it out. Govern our country by it. Tell your children about it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When they get up, when they walk along, when they go along the road, and when they lie down, tell them about these things. They knew it. They knew the Bible stories. They knew the law. They just didn't care. And could it be that we've got a whole generation of people coming up that just simply denies God's power because many of us are sitting right here and we don't even realize it. Zach, I'm right here. I've been right there. I've been trying to tell people this is what's wrong with our country. And, and I'm never going to be in that chair. I wouldn't boast. Where are you at as the band comes forth? Where are you at? If you're in radical faith to God, and you're trusting God, and there's no sin in your life, and you're just living for God wholeheartedly, I want to commend you. But be warned, because you can slip very easily into this. Where you're half-heartedly believing God, you're half-heartedly saying, you know what, God, I can't, I can't do this. And God is saying, no, no, no. It was I who gave you life. It was I who helped you overcome things and walked you through these valleys and all of these things. It's, that you, it's not that you can, it's that you won't. Just like the book of Judges. See, the truth is, you need to listen to me. Write this down, whatever you want to do. Let this soak in this week. Because the truth is, in the, the book of Judges is going to be an exact example. And I think America is heading there. Either your king will become your God. Or your God will be your king. And either God is going to take his rightful place on the throne of our lives. Or we're going to always be looking for someone else to bail us out of our immorality. To bring us out of our mess. To bring us out of everything that's going on. And if, man, if we just get a stronger military, I love the military. But only God fighting through our military is what made us strong. Men and women that fought in the name of Christ and in the name of freedom. Well, if we can just do this and we can make America great again and, and, and we're better together, listen, that is all focused on self and we need to start getting our minds back on the one who is worthy to be praised. The one who holds the stars in his hands. The one that turns nations and kings with just the sound of his voice. The one that is in control of everything. And the one that someday will be the champion. The conqueror. The conquering king. The victorious one. Which chair are you in? Will you stand to your feet?
with every head bowed, no one looking around, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit once again, God, which chair am I in? One, two, three. Am I in the radical faith? Am I in the half-hearted obedience? Or am I just in the denying God phase? The Holy Spirit's revealed it to you already where you are. How many of you would just say across the room right now, just this time of reflection, this time of invitation where God is speaking to you. How many of you would say, Zach, God's revealed to me which chair I'm in, and it's not the first one. Would you just slip your hand up? I just want to pray for you. Hands are up all over the room. How many of you would say, Zach, you talked about that covenant-keeping God, but I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Today you can. It's really simple. If you say, Zach, I've never accepted Jesus as Lord. I know about him. I've heard about him, but I've never surrendered my life. I've never wholeheartedly trusted him with everything. I've never uh, accepted his gift of salvation. I don't care if you've been baptized a hundred times. I don't care how many aisles you walked at VBS or in your life. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? And if you haven't, would you just slip your hand up right now? I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you. Hands down. I'm going to be at the front this morning. If you raised your hand to accept Christ, I'd love to meet you. I know it's a big step of faith. But come. I'd love to share with you about Christ. But those of you that raised your hand, and I, I have a feeling there's a whole lot more. You said, Zach, I'm not in that first chair. I'm going to ask you to do something bold. I'm going to ask you to come to the altar. You say, why do I have to come to the altar? Can I just confess it from my, my seat? Yeah. Absolutely you can. But come to the altar and kneeling before God lets him know you're serious. It's humbling yourself before an almighty God. This is not just a place to be saved. This is a place to come and to repent and to lay down things. So if you raised your hand that first time, would you come right now? Just step out wherever you are. Come right now. People are coming. You come right now.